Hey guys, Austin Nasso here, and welcome back to Working Comic Podcast. You're listening to episode 17. In this episode, I had the fantastic privilege of interviewing Erin Engel, who is a feature in the Seattle comedy scene. She's very well known and respected here. She is the executive producer of the comedy shows at Jai Tai, which are very well known throughout the Seattle area. She also recently left a, a multi-city show. Uh, it is a weed-based comedy show, and it's very impressive because it is a show that's run throughout multiple cities. So uh, we talk about how that's even possible and how one might start something like that. So uh, Aaron's very cool, and I know you guys will enjoy this interview. So please enjoy. Okay, so hey guys, welcome back to Working Comic Podcast. I'm here with Aaron Engel. Hi, team. Aaron Hello, is listeners. really cool. Aaron uh, is a headliner, comedian, and she is also a showrunner and producer in it's Seattle. True. I wear many hats. You wear all the hats, except for newsboy caps. I, well, and fedoras. I mostly wear baseball caps and uh, the occasional beanie or toque if you're Canadian. Okay, mm-hmm. I feel like I can't wear hats. Really? I was never like a hat person. Oh, why is that? I seem I could see you in a baseball cap. Really? Yeah. I was like the kind of kid where. Like in middle school, I wanted to just like start wearing a cap, and I just like, I feel like you can't just start. Do you I feel like it would have been a total reinvention of your identity? Yeah, because I wasn't, I never wore like a cap. Like I was always kind of like dorky, like wearing cargo shorts and stuff. And can Asics. I make a guess? Did you have awesome long like ear length snowboarder flippy hair for a long time? It was more like puffy and Jewish. It's it's great curly hair. So now that you're an adult, you probably you know what to do with it. But as a, a junior higher, no, it's a disaster. No, it was you really disagree. hard. Yeah. It was really hard. No, I agree. It was really yeah. I didn't know what to do with my hair. Yeah. Well, I have curly hair as well, and it was pretty. I pretty much like brushed it out into a sort of fluffy triangle for most of my youth. Okay. And then I. One day I just figured it out. Like I went to sleep with my hair wet and I woke up with pretty curls and I was like, what the hell is this? Wait, one day you just woke up with like beautiful hair? Yeah, and I was like, like I, never, I, did, I was like blow drying it and brushing it out and doing what I thought you did to hair like as a girl. And, and then it ha- and then it worked? And then and then I, I didn't do anything with it and it was much better. And then I started putting a copious amounts of like scrunchy mousse into it. That was a bad era. The uh, early aughts were a, a time of crispy curls. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah, I wasn't, um, I remember just thinking back, like, yeah, it was just very puffy mm-hmm. for me. And uh, I thought the only way to style your hair was to just do a little tiny flip. Up, yeah, that was And that was it. <laughs> and you like, couldn't from really do that because you had curly yeah. hair. Yeah. So you had like it a little really front hard. tuft. It was just a tuft. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now it's thick and lush and you could put a hat it's on lush. it if you want. Yeah, I think I should. I feel like that's what you can do after college is just uh, you can decide what you look like. It's true. You actually could do that whenever you want. You could probably do that whenever you want, (laughs) but I didn't know that until probably now. Well, you're afraid that somebody's going to confront you about it and be like, this is ridiculous. Yeah, like I'm I'm scared to wear a hat. Like I think someone is going to be like, we know you don't wear hats. Like it's just someone's going to know. Like, like you're a cartoon character that wears the same outfit every day yeah. and then you come out with something different and pe- nobody knows mm-hmm. how to handle it. That's kind of what it's like through mm-hmm. like middle school and high school, mm-hmm. I feel like. Oh, absolutely. I was, uh, I had a friend in high school 
uh, who had an older sister. She was like a senior when we were freshmen or something. And I kind of dressed really ridiculously in high school. Like I'd wear 80s dresses or like, you know, knee-high socks and cartoony t-shirts and whatnot. Quite silly style or lack thereof. And his older, this my friend's older sister was like, what's going on with her? Is she having some sort of identity crisis because she dresses insane? Wow. Yeah. And so then I tried why? to tone it down. Really? You took it really seriously? I mean, like, I was partly I was like, well, good. I am, like, you don't need to think I'm whatever. But it was also, like, a blow. So I was like, oh, no. Oh, Pe- man. People think I'm weird. Yeah. I came to terms with that yeah. in seventh grade that people thought I was weird. Yeah. Yeah, my yeah. childhood was interesting. Yeah, I just I tried to make people laugh all the time. That was always my goal too. Really? Mm-hmm. I feel like it's really unhealthy though, because yeah. instead of learning like valuable like listening and interpersonal communication mm-hmm. skills, you learn that like the wrong way is that oh you just have to say something funny and make people laugh all the time. And then you and do just, not like, have totally to approach wrong. the serious topic at all. Yeah, it works like a charm. Yeah, mm-hmm. but like. I don't know. I, I learned later in life that that's not what make pe- makes people like you. It's what makes people laugh at you. It might be what, partly what makes people like you, though, because it, you just have to, you know, learn to use it in measure and use your powers appropriately. Uh, you know, and if I think it's about the reading people part where you, you learn whether they're willing to laugh it off and move on at that point or if they just want you to, like, hold them while they cry about something and... Uh, it takes a long time to figure that okay, out. I'm really bad at that. <laughs> the, really t- the tenderness. Yeah, it's well, just hard for me to know when... So I feel like you've figured it out in some way. Yeah, but still, everyone... The thing everyone gets mad at me is, like, keep, I keep joking, even yeah. though when it's like, all right, like, we can be sad or mad now. Stop. Yeah. Have you ever seen a therapist or counselor at all? Um, I did, like, senior year of college because yeah. I was Cause getting, was like, really anxiety. Yeah, yeah. and it was free. I was getting, like, weird panic attacks. Because of worrying about what was going to happen after college? It wasn't even conscious. It was more like I was just doing so many things. And Mm -hmm. I guess it was, like, my body telling me that I have to relax. Like, because I'm, like, fine with doing a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But I was, like, running my comedy club at school Mm -hmm. and, like, doing my, like, engineering stuff. And, like, trying to be social and also applying... For, for jobs and preparing for interviews and yeah. like potentially leaving LA and then ending up leaving LA and stuff. Yeah, all of that at once is a it's a huge crisis point and some people you know put that together right out of high school and some people put it together right after college and some people never do and yeah I'm that's I think I've I've gone to therapy a handful of times in my life I'm not doing it currently. Um, part of me is like oh I gotta keep a little bit of trouble that's how I stay funny <laughs> yeah like, I'm also kind of worried like if you just too emo- emotionally health it's kind of sad that there's like an inverse relationship with like emotional health and like things to talk about in comedy mm-hmm. it does seem like that but unfortunately you know as as we have seen too many times the there's a lot of severe mental illness and and suicide and things like that in our universe yeah so you have to figure out how to be at least a little bit well that's true, um, and it does. It's it's really nuts that we feel like those are, like you said, they shouldn't be though. It shouldn't be. I feel like that is the way with a lot of comedy though. Like it's that's the loudest crow in the world. Like, <laughs> it's why? my friend. That's yeah. my friend coming to pick me up. Oh okay. Yeah, I'm that, running late. It's like a belligerent crow. Sorry, I'm so distracted. By that crow. 
Well, we are in your, uh, just to paint a picture for the audience here, in a very breezy, lovely, well-lit uh, apartment living room. And the planes are flying over, and there's trees rustling, and it's all very nice, but very probably nice. n- all picking up on yeah, these hot-ass microphones. Yeah, we are hearing, like, all of this, for sure. <laughs> are you watching the levels go up as yeah, the Yeah, I'm getting screams. stressed by this crow. Here, <clears throat> here's an interesting tidbit, is I feel like, some, for me at least, some of the best comedy is stuff that's really revelatory about like the human experience, which would take someone that in, has some level of emotional intelligence yeah. and you know knows what people want and think and understand, or at least like even if we're wrong or way off base with that stuff. I, I enjoy listening to people that talk about those things and can sort of um, li- like pull back the curtain of weird societal standards and stuff like that. Those are some of my favorite comedians. Um, and so it is strange that some of those same people that can pierce so deeply into like what it is that makes us human have such a hard time handling that or, you know. That's interesting that you say that. I, I don't know if I agree with, I don't think they're the same skill because one is being like critical and very like observational to like society and like the nuanced like social mm-hmm. conventions and like being very aware of it. And another is uh, having empathy and like being able to like be a good listener and like mm-hmm. care about what other people are saying or going through and it's You're like right, well, one's right. like kind of interpersonal skills, mm-hmm. and another is like a, I, almost I like an observational skill. Critical was the was a good word to use, I think. Yeah. Yeah, because like think about a lot of uh, writers that are like, I mean, so many like brilliant writers too, where like they can write extremely well and perfectly capture like the like verisimilitude of something. Oh, great! Ten dollar word. Ten dollar word verisimilitude, mm-hmm. um, but they're like still like depressed and like they don't have good people skills necessarily. Yeah. And nor, nor does depression go hand in hand with ha- being Having sociable good people skills. or no. empathetic or anything like that. They're so, yeah, unrelated. So yeah, you could be very like extroverted and sociable mm-hmm. and also be depressed. I was talking to somebody recently about, about the makeup of the, the comedic, you know, uh, field folks that are in our industry and how they are some of the most, socially capable and some of the least socially capable people that you'll ever encounter. It's so crazy. It's really a spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, and it doesn't seem to di- dictate success on one end or the other. So, Yeah. You'll have some people that are super socially awkward and some people that are very like charismatic. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. But I feel like that's like the two types of people. Mm-hmm. I guess there's some in between. No, there's uh, only two types of people. That's what everyone yeah, says. Yeah, no, there's, there's two, types. two types. That's what I thought. <laughs> you can always narrow it down to two types uh, if you like to put things in opposition. Yeah. Like that, but. Um, have you, like, had to deal with any, like, health issues like that in comedy or in life? or? Um, I, I know I do in, in spurts, you know, if it's in spurts of uh, just wellness in general. Um, I wouldn't say that I like struggle with depression. Um, I have, uh, I launched back into comedy on the heels of losing my dad. And so I was kind of in a very dark, tumultuous time at that point. Um, which I would find that I find that 
a lot of people have that kind of story too, which is start doing comedy on the heels of some sort of trauma. Um, so I think I, I did do a lot of processing through that, and it was also a great world to step into where I could drink all the time and just be out at bars uh, and stay out late, and uh, it, was a, it was a good universe to drop into when I was going through that stuff. Um, I would say that when I compare myself to other folks in the comedy world, I, I do really value my relationships outside of this sphere. So yeah. I have a lot of close friends and my, my um, romantic partner as well are not affiliated with the comedy universe. And I think that gives me a good bit of balance in my life and um, a little bit of perspective so that I'm trying not to get too caught up with living important. and working all in the same space. Yeah. That's definitely good to have friends not in comedy, mm-hmm. I think, to keep you normal. Yeah, absolutely. And then, because th- just like in any, I'm sure with any field, when you take some giant crisis to them and they have the a frame <laughs> for you that is like not with that as their entire worldview, you're like, oh, okay, maybe this isn't as huge as I thought it was, or if you come at it from a little different angle, then it's easier to digest. Just getting those diverse viewpoints in your life. Yeah, that's true, especially because we're all in a uh, little bubble, mm-hmm, a little mm-hmm. echo chamber. Isn't that right? Echo, echo. Um, so, how, so, okay, sorry. When did you first get into comedy? You said it was the second time you got into comedy? Or was did, it more yeah. recent? So, the very first night, I, well, I did, um, when I was in high school and college, I was uh, involved with, like, improv groups as well. Oh, nice. So, at that time, I thought stand-up was absolutely out of the realm of uh, consideration for me. It just didn't... I don't know why I never thought that that was going to be something that would suit me, because I liked to write and I liked to perform, but for yeah. some reason, I just never thought that those things would be... I don't know. I guess I thought stand-up was just not something I could do. Improvisers are scared to do stand-up, yeah. typically, just because they're like, you don't have the team to have your yeah, back having, anymore. having people on stage with you and... Um, having the like the full support of the audience just that just believe in you so much and want yeah want something funny to happen out of nowhere it's way more supportive that's an interesting thing to think about that improv i never thought about how just improv is just way more supportive in every way everybody in improv is like is ready for you to succeed while the the stand-up audience is more waiting for you to prove that you're funny and yeah. it's a very uh, different environment for sure. Um, not that the audience is at fault for that in any way, because it's a you know we also as stand-ups theoretically should be prepared and have yeah. ideas and have material and things like that. So there's an unconscious uh, like correctness in that <laughs> in that shift in the audiences. But yeah, so I, I did. I was like. Absolutely not. I, I thought stand-up was terrifying. But I would do things like I would write poetry that was, like, funny. Yeah. And read and do, you know, poetry readings and, like, poetry slams and stuff like that. I don't know. I was I was deluding myself, apparently, because <laughs> I wanted to do it the whole time, it turns out. Um, so I did improv things in high school and in college. And then I moved to Seattle in 2011. And... Um, was kind of looking for a creative outlet, thought about trying to get involved with the improv community, and uh, ended up like 
dating a, a random okay cupid person and he and oh, i wow. both were like kind of slightly interested in trying stand-up and so we went out and did an open mic together and then that was the very first time was memorial day monday monday night open mic at the comedy underground wow um in it must have been 2012 that's crazy yeah. so you moved here right after college i did yeah got a job at a restaurant moved up that summer because I was uh, I went to school in Tacoma so I was just a stone's throw away okay yeah so why Seattle kind of felt like I was gonna just work in a restaurant and start paying back my student loans no matter where I went I didn't have any real direction after college like career-wise because I was an English major and what the fuck was I gonna do <laughs> besides theoretically write I don't know a book of poetry or short yeah stories I don't or get maybe. What English majors can do. Not to be, I just don't know. I actually don't know. Well, nor do I, friend. Um, but, I mean, I guess I've kind of come full circle now because technically I write for Yeah, a you're using your <laughs> so, major to, for good yeah. use. So they could be comedians, I guess. Uh, or, you yeah. Know, or, and it, I mean, I thought maybe I could... Um, I've always been really into music and stuff. Thought maybe I could contribute to a blog and maybe or like make money writing internet articles or something. But I was very, very lost and without direction. And but I was kind of comfortable with that at the time. I was like, all right, let's let's get out there. I'm ready, ready to move to a new city, ready to go somewhere. And Seattle, I uh, was like, oh, this is close. It's easy. I like the city. It's a bigger city, and. And it's not, you know, a massive relocation to where I can keep the yeah. things that I have and just go. So, are you still friends with a lot of people from Tacoma? Um, my one of my best girlfriends is a, a fellow English major. We met in like our sophomore year poetry class or something, and um, she's an on again, off again roommate as well. So she's one of my closest friends. She's a, from the University of Puget Sound, um, and then I have. A handful of friends that we'll see each other a couple times a year um, but the majority of my Seattle friend base are people from my last two like restaurant jobs mm -hmm. and from the comedy universe so that's cool uh, I've, I've, I've landed in really great spots where I've made good friends with people I've been. nice so let's go back to that first Mike uh, what was oh, that yeah. like well, let's see. I had some of those wonderful same friends from the restaurant that I was working at at the time. They came out to watch my very first open mic, which was crazy generous and supportive of them. <laughs> uh, and I was I signed up for it with my my then boyfriend, and I was like super nervous, but like excited about it, but nervous to the point where I, in the day the entire day, I I spent like rehearsing my lines yeah and like word for word yep I had note cards and I didn't I don't think I I don't think I read from the note cards on stage but I did have like each joke on a note card you know one at a time so that I could like pace myself well as though I was giving a three-minute speech in a class or something yeah um and it went well I had a pretty good first set I had a really? couple good jokes yeah and, a lot of laughs I mean in for for my first time ever, I was like, "This is amazing!" I'm like, "That's amazing!" I'm, I'm funny. It turns out, that's but great. I always thought it was funny, and I've always been silly and funny and stuff. But uh, 
that was is just such high it's such high pressure to be like I am presenting you these these items for your laughter yeah and if that's not what I get this is a disaster it's uh, really vulnerable yeah it's a very crazy thing um, but it went pretty well and maybe that was because I had some supportive friends there that were like be- that believed in me and were ready to laugh at me um, some of them were decent jokes and some of them I still use in some iteration a couple of those jokes that's cool I feel like there's a couple ways to take the first experience it's like you do well and then you're like really happy and uh-huh. then you do it again or you bomb and, and you're like I can't ever you're like <laughs> I can never perform again and then you're you don't continue into the gene pool or you bomb and you're like I'm actually funny though and then you like resolve to like mm-hmm. kill yeah and then, yeah and you're like I gotta work on that <laughs> in some way yeah um yeah it was very it was, it was very fun it was heartening for, because of how much hesitation I had so it's like oh this is actually really fun and I kept doing it for a couple months uh, and my my then partner was doing it as well we would just go to ran- the handful of open mics that were around we'd go to uh, we went to the Crescent which was uh, is a still an active bar but they don't have a comedy night anymore uh, gay bar in Capitol Hill we okay. go to Comedy Underground, and I believe we went to Scratch Deli as well. Um, I'm trying to think if there was any other spots we went. Um, there was, I, I feel like I did things at the Rendezvous that were not, it was not the comedy womb or the comedy nest. It was not, yeah. that didn't exist yet. Um, and yes, yeah, so we did it for a few months, and I was working that job. I was working nights, so... It was, I only had a couple nights a week open to do comedy, and he was not as into it as I was, and thus, since... Oh, he stopped. Yeah, he stopped, and then I had gotten a couple opportunities out of it. Like, people were like, oh, do you want to host the show? And um, I don't believe he had, so he, he was more discouraged, didn't feel like sticking around, and, and since I am a terrible pushover, I was like okay I guess we're stopping now <laughs> because we you know I was oh like, you stopped too yeah I stopped too because he didn't really want to do it oh. and we only had a little time to spend together so I was like okay well I guess we're not doing this anymore but I eventually especially um like after after my dad passed away and stuff I was like I really want to start doing this again and our our relationship fell apart like a month after my dad died because not a great partner <laughs> uh, yeah. but uh, yeah and he was like oh, I, thought, I was like well maybe I should change jobs and have a day job so I can do comedy stuff even though I wasn't really like making money or anything at that point I just wanted to do it and yeah he was not interested not into that idea I didn't think it was a good idea I thought it was like a stupid financial sacrifice and all kinds of different things so for yeah. many and sundry reasons we split up and fortunately I started doing comedy again so nice and then I haven't stopped the train since then. So when I tell when people ask me now how long I've been doing it, I say, um, I say about I would say about five and a half years. I'll, I'll add six months onto the, the the relaunch basically. That's cool. Yeah. So that's that's where I'm at. Nice. So I noticed um, you said partner, and a lot of people say partner now, mm-hmm. and I don't like why. Is it, what's the use of, I don't understand. Like, is yeah. it a gender thing um, or, or I, a mature person I, thing? I 
pretty much ex- I exclusively date males. I'm a straight person, but uh, I do say partner. It's something I picked up partly just because I feel like um, gay people shouldn't have to be the ones that say something different, you know? Like, or, I mean, granted, I think that a man could say he has a boyfriend and a woman could say yeah. she has a girlfriend and all of that. But for so long, it was like, oh, that's my partner and it's not my you know, if in a gay relationship. So it was like, oh, they, they, why do the, why do the gay queer community have to be the, the other side of it? So if I say partner, then I'm not immediately like showing my hand of, of who I am. So I feel like that might be more open language to, Interesting. I don't know. Yeah. I know a lot of people say it and I'm like, is that, are you just like very mature? <laughs> I'm like, why don't you say like boyfriend and girlfriend? Yeah. Well, part of it is, um, I mean, I, I remember a very, uh, like an interesting moment for me was I had a college professor who was like super young and handsome and everybody was really curious about him and he would always refer to his partner. And so everyone was like pretty sure he was maybe dating a guy. And then at some point it came out that it was a woman and people people asked him why, like, why would you say, why do you say partner when you're straight? And he was like, well, I'm in my thirties and she's in her 30s, and it seems like pretty. It makes I feel like it makes it sound like teenagers to call her my girlfriend, you know. And it's and it's like, I don't know if they just feel yeah, like girlfriend and boyfriend. I That's know, so I just, true. I kind of got over saying it at some point. Like, I'll still. I don't know. It just sounds better to me to to say partner, yeah. especially because of like for me the. Like we were we were living together and stuff like that, and my current my current partner and I are yeah. living together as well. Um, Does he say that too? You know, he probably, I think he probably says, he says both. We both say both. We will, I'll call him my boyfriend. I'll call him my partner. And he does the same, but it's a nice equal. Thing. Yeah. And that's, and that's partners. Part it, yeah. Partner. That's good. And I, and I just like the, yeah, I like the, th- the thought of being someone's partner. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I mean, being someone's, I also use the term girlfriend to describe my female friends. Yeah. And that and that's something that I got from my mom. She uh-huh. always said, like, Erin and her girlfriends are hanging out. And, yeah. And so I've never had a problem with people saying that. And, you know, of course, ver- at various times in my life, people have been like, girlfriend, uh, you got a girlfriend? And really? Yeah. That's just, like, childish things. Interesting. Yeah, I'm, I, a lot of people do that where I'm from, too. Just yeah. like how people talk. Yeah. My girlfriends and my guy friends. Yeah, and, it's like, oh, my God, my girlfriends are coming yeah. over. Yeah, exactly. So it's, I, I don't, I don't know. It's one of those words that I'd rather just say, rather just say partner than. That's cool. And people can think whatever they want about me. <laughs> that's. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, those are interesting to dive, think, dive into. Yeah, so we can go back to the comedy stuff. I just wanted to ask about that because I, I feel like I don't know that many people that do that, but I was just curious. But more and more lately. Yeah, more and more. Yeah. It's weird in my head. I don't know. My first thought is just like partner. Like I don't know. Like howdy partner. Yeah. Like <laughs> just like why is everyone becoming a cowboy? But um, I don't think that's what it is. Because we all should be cowboys. Yeah, we should. Um. So, I'm so lame. Okay. <laughs> Yeehaw. In uh, in comedy now, you're doing a lot of featuring and headlining. And I would, when you said it's just a headliner, I was like, I'm more. I would categorize myself more as a feature at this point just because I haven't headlined comedy clubs. So I've, I've featured at comedy clubs, which is more in the half hour range. Yeah. But I have not done the 
hour-long headlining sets, so I wouldn't really call myself a headliner, but I can certainly close out shows yeah. <laughs> and things like that, This the sort of stuff that um, our our friends and our peers are putting on and, and like the more DIY alternative scene, I'm certainly comfortable being. Yeah, you're very well known in Seattle, I feel like. Fuck yeah. And you're, you're producing a ton of shows. <laughs> you shall and know my name. Your name is known. Um, do you mind briefly explaining uh, the difference between, for people listening if they don't mm-hmm. know, just headlining, feature, sure, and I guess... Yeah. Well, we base all all those that language off of the comedy club model. So at a comedy club, you know, you're gonna, uh, which is maybe what we're working towards at any given moment. Um, Some people are club club comics, some people are road comics, and some people are, you know, want to be move towards the TV direction or various other endeavors. Um, But at a comedy club, your typical structure would be to have a host. Uh, who is the MC? who's also a comedian, although lots of people come up to the hosts of shows and say, you're funny, you should do comedy. <laughs> I've Whoa. seen that many, many times. And they think that the MC is... You should do comedy. Yeah. I've had, when I've MC'd, emceed shows before, I've had that happen on multiple occasions. You're really funny. Do you do, you do comedy? I'm like, yes, this is it. This is part wow, of it. Wow, I, I think I'd be offended, to be honest. I, I was, would definitely be I very offended. Cool. <laughs> And yes, as long as it's wrapped in a compliment, it's all right. But it is one of those things that I think um, because the MC role, you know, you'll have a, a person talking to introduce acts in a lot of different art forms. Uh, so like maybe the MC of a hip hop show or like a, um, a musical variety show, the MC might not necessarily be a musician. Uh, but is rather just the person that comes up and talks and introduces everyone. Yeah. So, whereas at a comedy show, I'd say 99.9% of the time, the MC is a comedian that will do a, a shorter act. Maybe they'll have to do the rules at a comedy club. There's always, always, always stuff to do, like shots or drink specials or or telling people where their phones should and shouldn't be and all of that. So it's that's definitely the entry-level job at, for a comedian at a comedy club. Uh, is the hosting slash MC role. So when you're a host, you uh, at a comedy club will usually do between seven and fifteen minutes, plus yeah. or minus your the club announcements that you have to make. Um, and then uh, the either they'll either have unpaid guest spots for folks that drop in or people that they want to give opportunities to, kind of the up-and-comers. The host? Um, this is after Oh, this the is host. after the host. After yeah, the host, yeah, yeah. you might have a, what they would call a guest spot. So I have a quick question about yeah. the host spot. It seems like Seattle's very much like the new person or someone who's like up-and-coming will host. But some places, don't they make uh, like pretty decent you have to be pretty decent to host, right? Yeah, and theoretically in Seattle, you have to be pretty decent to host too. At the cl- yeah, definitely at the clubs. So, um, whereas, uh, and we'll get to this later, I'm sure too. But the shows that I book at Jai Tai were an amateur room. So the the highest aspiration at Jai Tai is to do the fr- the half hour on a Friday, to do a headlining spot on a Friday. Um, but for a lot of folks, that may be one of their first opportunities to do a half hour. So. What we what our highest achievement is in that room is still basically a feature level set at a comedy club. 
Yeah. So it's it's not, um, and and we definitely get a hold of awesome people that are headliners around the nation and stuff like that that will come in and do just a, a room to do a cool room. Um, but what we're coaching people into is is to is to prepare them for those bigger opportunities that we can't even provide. Yeah. So like, a to, an open mic host, for example, that is, it takes a lot of work. And it's a learning, for me, I think it's a learning experience for a lot of people because you have to go reset the room up to 30 times. And sometimes all you have to do is just say somebody's name and bring them on stage. But sometimes you might have to recover from somebody being really awful. And and if you can do that as a newer comic or as maybe a year or two in, if you can, um, if you can suddenly take back a whole room after somebody's shat all over it that's a really good sign. And that means that you're ready for bigger things yeah. in my mind. So that's how kind of how we filter people upwards is starting with the host position. It's also a lot of responsibility to be the host because you have to start from no laughter at all and turn the room on. Like yeah, you said. it's really hard to start yeah. cold like that. So it takes, it's, it's definitely a vote of confidence to put somebody into a hosting role. Um, and with the comedy clubs, like I said, that's, it's sort of the, the quote-unquote entry level, but those guest spots might even be the entry level, actually, because yeah. those are usually unpaid um, unpaid positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, you know, Johnny Regular has been showing up every weekend for the last three months, and tonight manager Mike wants to put up Johnny Regular for five minutes because yeah. he's seen him do open mics, and he's like, ah, he's fine. So they give him the spot, and if he smashes it, then maybe that leads to future opportunities. If he doesn't, then he probably won't be asked back anytime soon. Yeah. So those kinds of things. But then a host um, in in a typical comedy club, and perhaps an ideal comedy club model, that's a paid job. So you really are you're really choosy with the people that you start giving one of your three paid positions on a weekend. Yeah. So you have the host, and then maybe a guest spot, and then you have a feature, the featured act, which. A lot of our shows that like we're, you know, our, sh- our shows in bars around town and whatnot, we might call the quote unquote headliner or the feature interchangeably um, because they are, you know, the person whose name's on the poster. So this show featuring Austin Nasso. Yeah. And you might be the, maybe the headliner or the featured act. Um, but in a comedy club, the feature is the, like the middler or the, um, the opener for the headliner. Yeah. And they're usually doing, um, depending on the structure, but usually doing like 20 to 30-ish minutes for their set. So if you think of an ideal show as running 90 minutes, then you have a host do 10, a feature do 20, and then a headliner, the headliner do an hour. Um, so the headliner is the, is the draw, is the person whose name is literally yeah. on the board or on the ad. Um, they are the theoretically the person that everyone pays to see and everyone else is, is sort of the warm-up act. So you have the host to make things go smoothly, the feature to warm them up, and then the headliner can do whatever the fuck they want for 45 minutes to an hour, depending on where you're at. That's cool. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, so a lot of a lot of our um, kind of DIY shows that we do around town, feature the, the term feature is used for the headliner. Um, but... I would, yeah, like I said, I would consider myself a feature at this point because I have not done the headlining hour-long sets at comedy clubs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that the break, insight. The very elaborate breakdown. That was great. <laughs> um, I was asked to feature for Comedy Nest. All right. Next so that month. is the I'm closing excited. spot, correct? 
Yeah. So that's yeah, that's the, essentially the headlining spot for the comedy nest is what they call their feature, but they appropriately call it a feature because it's about a twenty minute spot. Yes, I thought you also like. I was under the impression that you co-ran it or something, or did I'm at not, some point. I'm not affiliated with. I, I, not. I'm a fan and a friend of the Comedy Nest, okay. but I don't have a, a you don't position there. I'm not a producer there. Okay. Um, Which shows do you pr- you produce a lot of shows? I do. I produce. Um, I produce every. I'm the I'm the executive producer for Punchline Comedy Shows at Jai Tai on Broadway. So every single show at Jai Tai is under my purview. And Jai Tai is a Thai restaurant a in thai, Capitol a, Hill a in Seattle. A very funny Thai restaurant on Broadway in Capitol Hill. All the time people say, I didn't know there was comedy there. Yeah. And, and I say, it's in the back bar. And then they say, I didn't know there was a bar. So, uh, but at the same time, we've got a really great reputation now. I think a lot of people send their friends there as like the cool place to go see comedy. So uh, I love that room. I think there's a lot of awesome opportunity there and really good audience. It's a great room. I mean, it's known. I think it's definitely one of the rooms that are like most known in Seattle, mm-hmm. like especially from people outside of Seattle. A lot of people mention Jai Tai. And I think, you know, it is kind of the next best thing to a to a club that we have in Seattle because of the frequency of shows um, and the, you know, the reliability of entertainment there, even though the majority of the shows are open mics. Yeah. We have four nights a week. We have uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Tuesday. Every week there's comedy. Uh, every Sunday and Tuesday it's open mic night. Every other Friday is open mic night, but these are specifically stand-up comedy open mics and not like a variety open mic where yeah. people are playing music or reading poetry or what have you. And then the opposite Fridays are those shows where we book a quote-unquote headliner to do a half-hour spot with a few other like 10-minute spots and a 15-minute spot beforehand. So That's we, cool. We still run like an hour-and-a-half long show, but it's got we've got more people that we can give opportunities, more up-and-coming comics that are maybe not quite there yet to where they're getting consistent work at the clubs. That's cool. And Punchline's really interesting because it's like you guys have a symbiotic relationship with the restaurant. Mm-hmm. It's like because you guys are technically a separate company, right? Right, exactly. And are you you guys are like an actual legal company. We are not. You're not. <laughs> no, you're just an organ, kind of like a group. Yeah, we are a, a literal nonprofit, zero profit <laughs> operation. Really? Okay. Yeah, so we can – we like basically uh, – make make enough money to pay our performers and to pay the people that like spend their evenings running the shows enough to make it worth their while and and that's it so it's a so pure passion it is. kind of it's organization a labor of love oh. um and uh, and some of the shows are more successful than others as far as the crowd turnout and that yields more money for the bar and more money for our performers so we've started like passing a donation jar and things like that so we can pay the comics which is a move we made about a year and a half ago because we thought, you know, I mean, I want, if I'm going out on a Friday night, I really want to make at least a little, a little money. 10 yeah. bucks, 15 bucks would be great. And, you know, buy people a couple of drinks, get them 15 bucks. And then if they're not doing any other shows that night, then that's a great deal for them. So, yeah. And it's like, and it's a good audience and all that. I'm always pleasantly surprised if you get any money from doing something comedy related because yeah. it's like, you'll do it for fun anyway yeah and that's kind of just like extra that's how i felt for a long time but then once eventually you know you get to a spot where um if the majority of your bookings are paid then you start to think oh i don't want to do that for no money you know yeah (laughs) so people your opinion starts to shift once you get more work and you know it's one of those things that's tough because uh like a really friendly lady that 
maybe lived on the streets told me. She was attempting to sell me some of her drawings, and she said she would give it to me for whatever I wanted to pay for it because artists have a really hard time demanding money for their own work because we love doing it. So I'd be doing it anyways, right? So I can come do it for free, no big deal. And then you do that for a very long time, and eventually once you start getting money, you're like, oh, wait, this is my job, or it could be my job, so I have to get something out of it. <laughs> Why <laughs> There should something. be a comedy union. Right, yeah. Right, because comedians are, a lot of comics are willing to work for free, mm-hmm. and especially in L.A. and New York. Mm-hmm. And when you have so many people willing to work for free, people that want money are really disadvantaged unless they really are the best. Yep. It's really it's one of those things where you kind of shoot yourself in the foot a lot of times by valuing yourself more. That is, I mean, I mean, it really is the same as just not having a minimum wage, mm-hmm. right? Like, if there were no minimum wage, people would just be completely exploited and like yep. be paid trash, and no one else, people that didn't want to put up with it, would be screwed. Mm-hmm. Or the, that's kind of interesting. The jobs that nobody wanted to do, nobody would fucking do. <laughs> um, yeah. But since they that pays the same as doing something else, you know, you might as well do it. But or maybe they pay more. But um. I feel like the jobs that no one wants to do, even without a minimum wage, would get the price. The wage would go up because, because no one would want to do them. Yeah, somebody's somebody's the boss and has to get people. Yeah, you're, you're gonna have to get someone to do for it, necessary right? Necessary services. So you're gonna have to raise the price naturally. Yeah, like working in waste disposal. Or yeah, something like that. I think they get decent pay. Yeah, that's. Sounds fair to me. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. pay you great money. Pay you more than I would pay a meteorologist. No offense. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so it's a, it's a very strange world, but we, you know, and then there's there's uh, a difference between a free show and a show that charges uh, an, inter- an admission price and stuff like that. Because the, if you're, if the audience is getting in for free, like that was kind of our struggle with at Jaitai is, uh, we pretty much every single show has no cover. There's, there's one show that has a cover, and that's because, you know, we it was so consistently full and so consistently popular. Well, then you have to. Yeah, it that, just makes sense that we were asking a good caliber of comics to come perform on it, and in order to keep that caliber up, we needed to pay them, and in order to pay them, we needed to charge a cover. So. Yeah, but if you had so many people coming, then it might make sense to charge. Exactly. And so the, cut if the demand out. is if the demand is there for the show, then we could we added five bucks at a time over a couple of years, and people are still paying the cover, and it's still getting full. So, it's it's great, and that's what we we've done. Kind of the, I it's part of the thing that it's really hard. It's a really slow grind, and that's hard to adjust because I feel like it's part of the soul of the place is that somebody can wander in and see like a little bit of magic uh, going on on a Friday yeah. night and. They just dip in. They're like, wow, I love that. And then maybe they'll come back and tell, bring their five friends or what have you. So that's why the, the donation jar step was, I think, a step in the right direction for us. And maybe in another year that'll change But and, and we'll put a door in. But then you got to pay somebody to work the door. So there's, yeah. it's just all, it's more, more moving parts. So um, Yeah. Sorry that everything outside my apartment is so loud. It's okay. Can't turn off. I literally the thought there was like a UFO the other day. Was there? I think I don't know. It was like weird lights, and it was just very loud. Helicopter. I don't know. It was very weird of me. 
I get sorry, I'm so distracted. Um, how did you uh, become executive producer? How did you rise the ranks of Jai Tai? Well, I, let's see. So in uh, 2013, that's when I kind of started, I dipped my feet back in and started doing stand up. And um, the first place I went was Jai Tai. It was a few blocks away from my house at the time, or my apartment. Uh, so I went to Jai Tai and uh, made friends that night that I'm still friends with. So oh, wow. some people were just really, really warm and cool. And I talked to a couple folk, warm and cool. That's a funny. Um, but everybody was really nice, and I made a handful of friends right away. People referred me to the comedy, it was then the comedy womb. Uh, so I started doing that as well. And now it's called the Comedy Nest with different management. But um, So I, it was a few blocks away from my house. I went at least once, twice a week usually, maybe more, um, once I started working a, a day job. And, uh, and after a while, it was actually an all-male team of producers at the time. Really? It was. And uh, at some point... I think it was Billy Anderson and Rick Taylor and Rick's partner Chris, uh, Rick's husband Chris. Uh, they had, had all befriended me as well, and they asked if I would be willing to come help out and, out and be an occasional host and producer. Uh, nice. Do like the Sunday night open mics. That's kind of the most independent. Like that's our that's our producer entry level job is the Sundays. Um, and so I started doing that. Uh, Pretty sh- like pretty soon, I think it was maybe even in 2014, and then uh, was basically a producer and host for maybe might, you might call it an associate producer, uh, and a host for a, c- a couple years. And Rick Taylor is a uh, he was the executive producer at the time, and he had kind of inherited the room and grown it into what it is now, and. Uh, he basically kind of groomed me to take over executive producership because Rick also has a uh, a full time job, a full time day job, and uh, and he's a very meticulous and very organized uh, person. And he felt that I was going to be of all of the the producer staff, he felt like I was going to be the one that was going to um, be similarly meticulous and uh, take care of all of the things that he'd set up. Yeah, it's really hard to delegate. Mm-hmm. Like being the president oh, of something yeah, or something hard. like that. And especially once when you kind of build something to, to step away from it is is really difficult because then you see you see it grow and change or, you know, maybe you see things start to fall by the wayside that you really cared about and and you have to just accept that that's no longer your purview. Yeah, it's really sad. That's how I felt about the comedy club at yeah. UCLA. So you left that in someone else's hands? Yeah, you had to just pass it on to the next yeah. person you to be president. Like, you're like, you can't have this anymore. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, want, I wanted me. to like, take it to Seattle. Yeah. You like run it remotely. Like I would have. There's a possibility you could have. I wish. But it's not probably not worth it. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> probably should let it go. Yeah. But um, that's really cool. So how many years was that to rise from associate to? Um, I would say a year and a half or two years that I oh, was working. Oh, wow. Um, and then, so I took over uh, in the beginning, of, like in January of 2017. However, I, you know, for several months was kind of working alongside Rick to see, you know, all the things he put into making the shows happen and um, 
promotional stuff and advertising and, and all those doohickeys and then the booking process, which the booking process is the most time consuming because I'm basically booking either, well, I'm booking the, the production staff and the hosts plus, you know, potentially up to like seven comics uh, for like the Friday showcases. I'm, I have every other four week. nights a week of every, of every show. So I, I book... I book the hosts and producers at least, even though we have, we have a, a team of producers and they are they host every Friday night as well. So I, I choose from those producers to host the Friday nights, but I have to book the producers and hosts of every single night. There's a few static shows like shout out to Mary Lou Gamba who runs uh, Comedy on Trial every last Saturday of every month. So that's sort of her show, and she's stuck right there, and she spearheads the booking of those shows. Um, and then there's the Gateway Show on the first Saturday of the month. Um, but uh, I, so I basically have to staff and book 28 plus shows a month. So wow, it's a bear. That's insane. And promote staff, book and promote. And you don't get paid. No, <laughs> I get paid occasionally if we have profitable nights. Wow. So. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. there's various like benefits. I would say you know like, uh, for example, I reserve the right to drop in where I want on any open mic, you know? Yeah. Um, and then, and that's for me as the executive producer. And then the, the rest of the producers can pretty much get a spot on their, on any open mic if they plan ahead, you know, and ask the person in charge that evening in advance. Wow. So that's, so they make very little money on Sunday nights. Uh, they might make a little bit of like tip from the bar. Um, but there's mostly not a lot of money in it. That's surprising. Yeah, so it seems like a lot goes into running that Jai Tai. Yeah, definitely. And it's um, when I, for the last like six months, I was doing another show four nights a month. And that did make me better money. Uh, but it also involved a lot of travel and a lot of other anxiety and movement and various yeah. other booking and people management stuff and I that was where I was like all right I've capped out <laughs> so yeah how how much time a week does it take to run Jai Tai um I would say if I were being if I were being smarter about my time it would probably be about like five hours a week plus the time or like maybe like three hours a week plus the time that I'm there so, which I'm there every, every Friday night for about four hours plus. Yeah. So, uh, and then I'm there like various other nights a week. And whenever I'm there, I'm like working a little bit, you know, just to make sure everything's running smoothly. Even though all the, all the producers can handle their own shows and they, um, they bust out. But like if I'm there and they need something, then I'm there to do it. How far in advance are you uh, booking these shows? Um, for the headlining spots, several months in advance um for the uh most of the hosting positions like like as you know basically about a month or two out for for open mic hosts open mic hosts uh for the sundays i usually book uh quarterly and uh that's actually helpful to do all that but then you end up having to deal with more last minute changes so it's like oh i can set all this stuff up but then there's still going to be changes so it's not all firm um, and then I usually try to book, um, like my, my guest spots for the Friday showcase nights 
um, by the beginning of the month that they're happening in. So the headliners will be in place a few months in advance, but the, the rest of the show will fill out a little closer. And I like to, you know, leave a handful of spots open because people will be coming in from out of town and, you know, they might, I'm like, oh, you're great. I'd love to give you a spot, but the show's already full. So yeah. while I would, I, while I want to focus on cultivating Seattle talent, so the majority of our shows are local people, I do like, we like to be able to afford opportunities to people coming through town because that's just going to be more great connections for everybody on that show. And, you know, that's, that's smart. You want to give, I, I, I mean, both you and I would hope that when we go to another town that not every single thing is booked that forever. Yeah, you know, exactly. <laughs> ad infinitum. Uh, so, yeah. So we you just hope they'll reciprocate people. ideally. Ideally. Well, and you just get to know people and then they can, if, if they see you perform and then you're going to their city, they might not have any opportunities for you, but they can at least say, oh, they're funny. My friend books the show and whatnot. So, you know, it's, there's a, so, since we are our own product, there is a lot of networking involved in all those moments. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah. Um, so you did uh, briefly run a multi-city show, mm-hmm. and I'm really fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. And um, I know you recently left, and uh, we don't have to dive into details, but whatever you want to talk about, I'm really interested yeah. in the production of that. Totally. Well, it was, a, it was a, you know, funny that you mentioned you know, that you kind of wanted to like keep your L.A. show and, and be able to run it remotely. That was sort of a similar situation where the, the executive producer of this show used to live in Seattle and, um, and ran a couple of these shows, and moved to LA and sort of left me in charge of the um, hosting and a lot of the production of it, but uh, the they were still running uh, the back end and doing all of the marketing and various, um, like they had booked out most of the spots already. So I like didn't have f- full, full control of the booking and things like that. I was basically, yeah, I was like a host and a, a, and a, assistant producer so I was responsible for everything on on the premises and uh, what that show had been has relies really heavily on sponsorships which was a new thing for me Uh, so that was really interesting trying to maintain relationships with sponsors and have make sure that they give you money so you can use that money to make ads so you can get people to the shows uh, and keep them nice and full and then and that was something I certainly didn't love was, uh, although I had the good fortune of working with some really nice people in the sponsorship universe, it's, it was just another thing that I was like, this isn't comedy. This isn't what yeah, I you're doing other, so You're doing like admin work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So stuff like that was um, uh, just a little less fun. But there are, you know, there's a lot to be said about like when you make money doing comedy if you think about, uh, like, say, a, a headlining spot you, at a comedy club, you might make one to two grand over the weekend for five shows. So that's about a grand or two grand for five technical hours of being on stage. But what you're really being paid for is all the time that you spend traveling and booking and emailing and all that other stuff. So you have to kind of backdate that pay. And getting better and doing yeah. free stuff too. Yeah, absolutely. So you kind of have to backdate that pay and distribute it out to all the other work that you do that's not just that moment on stage. Um, so I did try to, I thought about that a lot where I'm like, okay, I'll, 
I'm, I'm making the money to compensate me for all the time that I spend not doing the fun stuff of being on stage. Um, and I got to work with some really awesome people. We were doing monthly shows in uh, Seattle and Bellingham and Portland. And then we attempted to do a show in Olympia without any great success. Um, and what we, we actually landed on doing a monthly show in Eugene, Oregon. So, okay. So we had two, two separate weekends. It's, it was a lot of awesome opportunities for like touring comics to come and say, hey, we have, at least a, we have at least two weekends of shows and you can build your other shows around that and they're good paying gigs. So they were all in Washington and Oregon? Mm-hmm. And then the... I thought there was one in L.A. The executive producer now runs shows in L.A., Sacramento, Ventura, periodically in Sacramento and San Francisco, and there's like two in the L.A. area. Oh, so you ran the ones in Washington, Oregon. Exactly. He ran the ones in California. Exactly. And I had nothing to do with those. Um, and he was basically like had me as a contractor to run. Oh, so he's like, you are my brand. Exactly. So it was a show that we created together called The Gateway Show, which we basically, me and him and our two other team of Saturday producers at Jai Tai invented uh, many years ago, uh, three and a half, four years ago, and it was just a monthly show at Jai Tai at the time. We needed to branch off from what was in place when I came aboard was every single Saturday was comedy on trial, the comedy competition. So every single Saturday of the year. Wow. Yeah, minus two when we take off a hiatus. So that was running like that for a year or two, and obviously, just obviously, that was exhausting and got to be too much. So we wanted to start doing different variety of shows on Saturdays, and that was one idea that we came up with. Obviously not an entirely original idea. Comics um, do a sober set and then do something, and then they come back and do another set. Or like, you know, that, that kind of show idea exists, but... We had this idea and thought it would be fun for Seattle, especially uh, as legalization was just coming about uh, and we're a very stonery city in general. And uh, so we, our little team of producers started that as a monthly show and it was not quite what it is now. It's like anything, anything that gets good goes through a few revisions. And so now it's a pretty well-oiled machine. Um, but uh yeah, I was running. It just started out as just one one Saturday a month at Jai wow. Tai and is now up and down the West Coast. So That's crazy. So how much money could you make from a single show like that? Um, well, let's see. If, I will say minus all the expenses. Yeah, like, like profit. Uh, well, I can't entirely speak to the total profit of it. But I will just I can speak to um, like before before all the expenses, which you know we had to pay out comics, we had to um, sometimes pay for room rental and depending on the space that we were in. Uh, but like the a show at uh, at Jai Tai, for example, uh, we were asking fifteen dollars a head for people to come in. By the end of it, it started out free, wow. turned into five dollars a night, then ten, and then fifteen. So. Uh, let's see. I will do uh, some quick math. Okay, some math. Uh, How many people would come out? At $15 a head, if we had 85 people come out, that would be $1,275. So then we'd pay out the comics. We'd, you know, 
host a tab for and you get people. sponsorship money and yeah. know, I imagine you don't use all of the budget yeah you use sponsorship money towards advertisement usually uh, or or maybe the sponsors didn't pay that month so we'd have to you know use that cash towards that so um, basically after everything was paid out then uh, me and the executive producer would uh, would split that money in a interesting yeah you get 30 percent and i got 70 percent after all that for for running the show wow and so he would set up kind of the just uh sponsorships and stuff like that yeah like he would a lot of them were on multi-month contracts so um that was sort of in place and then i would be like managing that relationship with the sponsors and uh, coordinating with them to get whatever things they wanted to display it at the shows and or put out on the tables, et cetera. And he was he would run uh, the advertising side of it mostly. Like that's which, so interesting. Yeah, that's a lot of revenue a month for comedy. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're doing multiple cities. Wow. Yeah. So it's uh, that was the first thing that um, is like going to be. I was like. Apart from a, a, a Comedy Central check that I got, this is finally like crossed the threshold of being like, all right, I'm paying taxes now. <laughs> That's wow. Yeah. So interesting. I imagine it's difficult, like in huge comedy places like LA or New York, mm-hmm. how could a show that charges $15 a head still get people? Is it? Well, shows that like the comedy store do, they just have to be really good (laughs) and they have to be consistent and they have to be well run and have something unique to keep them going um there's another show that uh one of that's you know i'm sure you're familiar with the dope show there's the gateway show and the dope show and the dope show started on the heels of the success of the gateway show by somebody who um was like basically like oh i should i'm i'm a pot comic i should do this type of show and then what's the premise of the dope show again it's I don't the remember. exact same oh it's the same the exact same comics do a sober set get stoned oh it's set. literally the same i'm pretty okay. sure yeah i have uh, where is it out of it's that runs out of tacoma comedy club and various other venues um i think they run various monthly shows as well okay so yeah but i haven't i haven't done that one um but yep it's basically the exact same thing and people come out to that so you know, you get a good idea, a good hook, and people will show up. That's and interesting. I, what kind of tactics do you guys do to advertise it? Um, I or would you have done in the past? Speak to that, but are you not allowed to say? Oh no, thing? I just, I, I just can't, I can't. Are you not sure? To it okay, because, yeah. Uh, but it's almost exclusively Facebook promotions. Wow. Yep. So, uh, I, I believe like almost one hundred percent. Uh, apart from you know just like various like print ads or like promotions in that way it's such a strong Uh, premise mm -hmm. that it's really a a, an alluring factor it's funny to watch those things roll out because they like you know if i'm sure everyone listening has seen like sponsored ads on their facebook oh like this thing keeps i keep seeing this thing over and over again oh it's sponsored okay what does that mean that means somebody's put money into making that thing pop up on your feed more often than somebody's uh, organic posts. Um, so because the more, it's such a weird, weird system. So uh, 
basically that the money that you put into it pumps it to the top of people's feeds over and over and over and over again for however long you set the payment to trickle out and however much money you put into it. And he puts a lot of money into really? it. Really? Yep. Do you know how much? I don't. Hundreds of dollars for each Hundreds. for each show. Wow. Yeah. So that's part of why it's so successful because it gets people, it gets fresh eyes on it all the time. Um, so something that I enjoyed about running the show when I was running it was getting a lot of people that had never really come to a comedy show before because they just saw this and they're like, that sounds like fun. Like, yeah, um, I like pot. That sounds fun. So I like to like talk to those people and hopefully like get them back to future shows and other shows. Um, that was part of my motivation and part of what kept it really fun for me. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I feel like a lot of people, there's so many independently run stand-up comedy shows, but you don't see a lot of them getting a huge attendance. Mm-hmm. And I think that that niche factor is really cool. Yeah. We do like a very small amount of uh, Facebook advertising for for my Jaitai shows. Like uh, we're talking tens of dollars. Yeah. For like, for and, and only for the show's. Uh, like not for open mics we we don't feel the need to put money into open mics because we're not making any money off of open mics yeah but if we put more money into the headliner shows then uh, maybe people will actually pay money to go see that so we put a little bit of money into that and it you know and basically it for me for the amount that we put into it is like pretty much equivalent to like a couple people sharing it for as how much traction it gets but for the amount of money that uh that is put into like the gateway show ads it's like you'll see 40 50 comments on it with people just like tagging their friends like hey this sounds fun hey this sounds fun because it pops up in their feed and then they tag somebody else and then every single engagement boosts it higher and higher i think it has an inherent virality to it yeah of like it's it's an interesting that just that kind of thing yeah it's a funny idea that's so cool um do you how do you go about like navigating like getting sponsors and stuff like that if people want to get their show sponsored so i've only done this like i pursued and secured a sponsor for one show the rest of that was like was set into place before i came aboard uh and they will continue to do that out now that i've left um but it's a it's a strange thing to like try to maintain those relationships with people and see like what if they're going to be happy with that, with the exposure they get out of it. A lot of what, especially in the weed world, what they get out of it is um, like cannabis companies, farms, dispensaries, et cetera, are not allowed to advertise on social media. So uh, basically they are piggybacking on an ad for something else that is has paid reach and is a, you know, it, it reaches a bunch of faces and basically their, their logo is on it and it's sponsored by them, but it's not an ad for them. So that's how, that's what's appealing. So it's like a loophole companies. for yeah. them. So for those of you listening right now, that might be a good angle for you to take if you're looking for sponsorship. So, uh, groups like that that are not allowed to use the same social media sponsorship tactics as something innocent like a show. Um, they might benefit a lot from that because they're constantly getting their Facebooks and their Instagrams shut down and stuff like that. So they get some viewership from your ads if they pay you money to put those ads out. Um, so that was basically like in the one, I just kind of cold called some people um, and this is partly what I do for like my, the nonprofit I work for now as well. 
is say, hey, your interests a lot are like your interests, services, goods, or clientele overlap with ours. Uh, we are a show that does this, this, and this located here at this time. And these are the kind of people that come and see us and how many of them. Um, if you'd like to get your brand in front of our audience, you should partner with us on, on this project and then have a fixed amount that you'd like from them and what kind of benefits you can offer them in exchange. So if it is a show that you're putting on, like maybe they get a handful of free tickets to it or they get to put up a banner or they get their name on your ads or whatever various things and just like kind of have that stuff set up in your mind to, to offer them and ask for a certain amount. And uh, if especially for that the type of people or type of organizations that that, that show is going after is a, a perfect synergy because they can't do that stuff on their own. That's so. interesting. How do you uh, quantify the gain they get from using your show? Um, well, if you're like in the, the Facebook or the Instagram marketing system, you can see exactly how many people you reach. Oh, just like literal engagement. Mm-hmm. But you don't turn it into like, this is how much money you got Not now really. from our customers. It basically, you can tell, say, um, this like, is how well the post did. Yeah, let me t- yeah, exactly. Let me tell you right now, listeners and Austin, um, if you have an event of your that you're putting on, you can go under boost. They basically go on Facebook and you say boost this event. And then there's various little things you can tinker with in the pop-up box, such as what the photo that's pr- that is linked to it looks like, how much text is there. Um, what if you're focusing the audience at all, like by gender, age, location, etc. And uh, the more focused you get, the more reach you have usually in a strange world. Um, so you can say like, okay, with Facebook, we'll tell you, okay, if you put $50 into it for this long, this is how many people will see it. So you can basically offer that number to your potential sponsor and say, you could be seen by up to this many people. Plus, at the show, we'll say your name or give away some prizes from you, okay. or give away some like gift certificates, and then people will go to your store or what types of things. That's cool. It's a very bizarre world, and it's all the stuff that's adjacent to comedy, but but is you know it's business and it's not being funny. So yeah. <laughs> it gets it's a different skill set entirely. Yeah. yeah, and some people have it, and some people don't, and some people will go very far because of having that skill. And for me, I was like, I'm tired of this, basically. Yeah. Did the, the show lose the, like, enjoyment factor because it became kind of, did it become robotic and too business-oriented? I tried to not let that happen because um, at the end of the day, as a performer, you're just there for that audience at that time, and they don't have any idea of all of the other stuff that's going on. So I just tried to enjoy those moments. But Do you ever feel like the show just gets kind of like too caught up in business that you ever lose the enjoyment from it? I think that um, I would definitely advise people who are producing shows that they're also performing on to have extra hands just because if you have too much to stress out about, then it is really going to rob you of the fun of being on stage. Um, I tried to not let that happen and uh, tried to just be as organized as possible so that I could focus on just having fun on stage when I was up there. And for for me and I and hopefully for all of us 
the important thing is the audience that's there and they don't have any idea of all of the stuff that's going on in the background. So um, if you can, you should just be there to bring them your 120% and like not, you know, not let that fourth wall be broken and not let them see the cracks in, in all of it. Um, and if you can do that, then it'll still be really fun. Um, but for me, it was like all, when, when, I, when I added it all up, it got just to be like the, the anxiety of everything outside of the show. I was like, ugh, it's not worth it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So, and what is what is worth it and what would be and what is it? I don't know, but we're me, all learning like, it. Yeah, exactly. So for whatever, for whatever you're involved with, I think, you know, like to kind of bring it full circle, like your mental health and your sanity is, is paramount. And, uh, and you know, you're the, you're the relationships that you have inside and outside of comedy and with your own comedy and with what you do, it's like, you still have to enjoy it. That's, there's really no point of doing it if you're not enjoying it. Yeah, I agree. That was a good little wrap bow tie. I don't yeah. know. I ended up. Um, well, thanks so much uh, for doing this and being in my crow slash plane. Yeah, how much noise am I getting department. paid? Um, yes. So <laughs> I will. We will do I was something. totally kidding. We'll, I was totally yeah. kidding. <laughs> um, because we, we can pay you in beer. Um, we Ooh, have beer. Let's crack some brewskis. Yeah, we can do that because we're going to go to the beach. But is there anything that you want to plug uh, before we head out? Um, yeah, let's see what's going on. Um, I should, I should have busted out my calendar before this. Um, I can plug my friend Corey Michaelis just released an album. I was just on his album release show. Uh, it's called the collage dropout. He's a nice young man. I don't have my calendar here. I rely 100% on a paper calendar (laughs) where I can look at my month at a time of schedule, uh, scheduled shows. But, um, yeah, just come out and uh, if you're in the, the Seattle area, come out to any old show at Jai Tai and buy me a drink because I'm poor. And uh, we do shows, uh, Punchline Comedy shows on Facebook. You can check out our schedule or you can just pop into Jai Tai any Sunday, Tuesday, Friday, or Saturday and there will be some fun stuff with some cool people. Cool. Thanks so much, Erin. Absolutely. Best of luck to you, Austin. Thanks. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into Working Comic Podcast. There's a new episode every week where I interview writers, directors, comedians, producers, any kind of creative thing you can think of, and also the business side of things. So club owners, agents, managers, festival runners, all that stuff. So tune in every week. And uh, also follow me on social media at the Austin Nasso on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can also catch me on YouTube with Cha Bros, C-H-A-A Bros, one word. Uh, We have some funny videos up, so check it out. Thanks, guys.